podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to continue our series and end the series today in Matthew chapter 13. And we've been talking about pictures of the kingdom, pictures of the kingdom, and we have been going through the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. Today we're going to be focusing in on two parables um, that from Matthew 13, 44 through 46. I went to pick up my son this week, well actually I went to pick up all of my kids this week from school, and when I got there, Kairos came out, and uh, he's my 12-year-old who thinks he's the bomb, um, and so he, he is, he is, I just don't want him to know that, um, don't, oh, he's back there, okay, so um, if, if there, he comes out and he's walking with one of his friends, and I see him point at me, and his friend kind of is not impressed and kind of walks away, um, and so he walks up, and I said, what was that all about, and he said, well, you know, I was trying to explain to him what my dad looked like, and so when you were here, I pointed you out, and I was trying to explain to him what you looked like, and and, and I can understand that because many of us know that when you experience something or someone or some place, it is difficult to explain um, what you experienced. I know that it would be hard for my son to explain this beautiful person here um, in words. But I said, well, son, how did you take this and wrap it up into explanation? And he said, well, Dad, I told him that you... We're tall, and I said, okay, bald, oh, and you always wear black shirts. And I, I got offended, immediately offended. One, because I'm balding, I'm not bald, I'm balding, it's completely different. Bald is completely different than balding, I'm balding, and I'm fine when I'm bald, you can call me bald, but right now I'm just balding. And I don't always wear black shirts, yes, I am wearing a black shirt right now, and I was wearing a black shirt when I went to pick him up from school, but I don't always wear black shirts. I said, son, I have more black shirts. And he goes, I mean, I have other shirts with color in it. And he goes, you never wear them, and you only have like one or two. And so it's hard when you're being described to people around you because the reality hits you that not everybody sees you the way maybe you see yourself. And, and it's really difficult when you're trying to describe other things. And so you know how difficult that is. But we also know how difficult it is to take the reality of something and describe it in words. Could you imagine going on a mission trip? If you've been on one, you've experienced this. You go overseas or you go to another place and God does this huge work and you come back to the people who have not experienced it and they all want to know, tell me what happened while you were there. And it is extremely difficult to explain in words. You finally just say, you had to be there. Because the experience cannot match the words. Could you imagine being God in flesh, coming into a world that does not understand in any form or fashion the kingdom of God. And trying to explain what the kingdom of God is like. This is what Jesus is doing in these parables. He's telling stories or he's giving pictures so that they can understand what the kingdom of God is like. Now, why is that so difficult? And the reason why is because everything in our world is opposed to that kingdom. 
Nothing in our context can help us fully grasp or understand because the systems of this world run differently than the systems of the kingdom of God. Everything in the kingdom is so countercultural to the kingdoms of this world, it goes against all those things. And one of those, uh, one of those ways and one of those systems that Jesus was completely combating over and over again and actually speaking these parables to were the Pharisees, the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers. And the reason why is because they would explain the kingdom of God in laws. They would give and proclaim the laws of the kingdom of God. They would say, if you want to be a part of the kingdom, live according to these rules. Do these things. Here's what the king says, do these things. And they would add laws and they would come down hard on people and they would try to use rules and regulations to control they would try to use rules and regulations to, to, be, to build up their own prestige. They try to use rules and regulations to get their own gain and profit from it. And so when Jesus comes into the world, immediately the people are thinking that the kingdom of God is much like the scribes and the Pharisees are teaching that this king is going to come and enforce his laws. Now, we can look back on that time and go, man, how foolish are they for believing that? Or I could share a personal testimony with you that much of my life reflects that very truth. I was raised in the church, spent most of my time um, in ministry, doing different things. From a young age, I was a part of a family that loved and served and followed Jesus. But in my own heart, I interpreted the gospel to, to be this. That if I did these right things, and if I read my Bible enough, and if I separated myself from people who did bad things, and if I did the right things, and if I said the right things, and if I lived the right way, then God would love me and accept me into His kingdom. So I spent most of my life not only trying to live up to that, but laying rules upon others, trying for them to live up to that. It always surprised me when the gospel was preached how offended I would get. Because he would, I would hear this gospel that Jesus' grace comes in and, and, and He died for your sins and, and He's paid the price for our sins and He's done the work so, so that we can trust in Him and that by His grace and by His death and resurrection we can live these new lives. And I would hear this and I would go, if that's true then the reason for which I'm praying, the reason for which I'm reading the Bible, the reason for which I'm staying away from these things, the reason which I'm not smoking and cussing and drinking and doing all these things is because I want God to be pleased with me. I, would, I couldn't believe that because if that was true, the motivation for all of my good works would be gone. You see, the kingdom of God pushes against this very reality that many of us are trying to find what do I need to do to be a Christian rather than being more concerned of whether our hearts are treasuring Christ. As we stand and read Matthew 13, 44 through 46, I want us to, to hear this parable 
and as it flies in the face of our kind of law-driven kingdoms, I want you to hear this parable that he tells as a picture of the kingdom. And the reason we stand together is because I want us to remember this is His Word. This is not my Word. This is God's Word. So as we read His Word, let's keep that in mind. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had bought. God, I pray that these words would sink deep into our hearts and that through these parables we would see a picture of your kingdom that we would treasure you above all things. In Jesus' name, and the church said, Amen. Most of Christianity in our world, in our culture, is so opposed to this, it's hard to understand because much of it, the teaching is controlling, the, the morals are good to aspire to but hard to live up to. We try to spend our lives in separation from the evil of the world around us. But this parable pushes against that in a way that I think we need to look at. And then I'm going to put some, some points up here on the screen and hopefully you can write these down. One is this. The kingdom is uncovered to stumblers and sellers. The kingdom is uncover, uncovered to stumblers and sellers. The first parable is of a man who's going through a field who's not looking for, who's not interested in, who has no mind of treasure hunting. He's not walking through a field with a stick with a round thing on the end of it and waiting for a magnetic signal uh, uh, for the treasure to be uncovered. He's not out there digging for gold. He's not out there looking. He is walking and he stumbles upon this treasure. And notice though that the Bible says he found it. And many people think that finding means you're looking. The reality is this man, according to this parable, stumbled upon it. And that is a definition of finding. He, he found something even though he wasn't looking for it. He was a stumbler. And then the next parable tells the parable of a seller. Now, I want you to hear he's a merchant who goes and looks for pearls and finds the pearls and sells the pearls. This is a picture of, if we will, those teachers, scribes, Pharisees, and those who have other moral teachings. They are going out there and they're finding these pearls and they're selling these pearls and they are using it for their own gain. They're using it for their own livelihood. They're, they're using it to, to live off of. Now notice this. He's not looking for the pearl of great price. He's looking for pearls. Pearls to sell. Pearls to flip, if you will. He's not looking for something to collect. He's looking to sell it. He's not looking to treasure it. He's looking to sell it. He's not looking to live with it or to own it. He's looking to get rid of it. It's not treasure to him. 
It is a means of livelihood. When he finds it, it is so beyond the worth of anything he could ever see, he sells everything. So the first thing is this. The kingdom of God is uncovered by stumblers and sellers, or it's manifested to those stumblers and sellers. I, I want to make it very clear here that although neither one of them were specifically looking for it, when it was revealed to them, it was so beyond what they could either, either imagine or believe that it had such difference from everything else in their life. It was a revelation to them. The second point is this. The kingdom of God surpasses all value. The kingdom of God surpasses all value. When they found this treasure, when it was uncovered to them, it was so far surpassing of everything, whether they were a stumbler or a seller, whether they were just walking through life and stumbled upon it, they saw this thing and were willing to get rid of all of the things of their life. Nothing else mattered once they found this. The merchant was not going to flip this one. This was worth everything he had. The stumbler was not going to wander any longer. He found what he needed. It was all sufficient, all valuable. It was the best of everything. Notice this. Much of how we talk of the kingdom of God speaks to the good life and then the God life. The good life was the life before God, and then the God life was how you had to give up the good life to have the God life. With smiles on our face, we talk about all of the things we used to do when we lived in the other kingdom. Oh, I used to, I used to be the life of the party. I mean, I would get so high. <laughs> Could that be why you thought you were the life of the party? I used to be so buzzing on wasted all the time. I mean, I lived around. I mean, people would just laugh, and we would party, and we would throw. I mean, it was incredible, man. I mean, dude, I would sell it. I'd push it. I'd do all these things. It was fun. And they'd spend 45 minutes in their testimony talking about the good life. And then Jesus came and told me I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> Such a buzzkill, Jesus. That guy just ruins everything. It's almost like we look back onto the kingdoms of this world with so much fondness that we truly don't see the value of the kingdom. You see, in these parables, we never even think that they went and sold everything. Why? Because they joyfully sold everything. They, they see this kingdom, they stumble upon it, and everything in its world, everything in this world compared to the value of the kingdom loses its value. They find it and they joyfully go and sell it. They don't even make a big deal about how much they lost. Why? Because what they lost compared to what they gain is mind blowing. They shouldn't have been able to have it. 
everything else, when we find what is of great value, loses its value. It loses its place of treasure in our hearts. And and what ends up happening is we're willing to sell it all. Have you ever had friends who never have money for anything? I see people looking over, huh? I tell you, there is tricks you play and they play. You know, hey, let's go out to eat. And they're like, oh, I don't got money. And they're waiting for you to go, I'll get you. Come on. They got money. Here, here's, here's the reality. You're always asking them. They never have money for anything. But every time something comes out that they love, mostly video games, or, 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 or something for their car, or something for their house, or something that they really treasure and love, the newest technology, for some reason they always have extra money to buy it. Why? Because the truth is, they're not thinking in the same terms, I don't have money. They're thinking of, what can I get rid of so I can get this? It's just logical to say, this has way more value. I know this has some value, but I'll sell all of this if I could just get this. Everything becomes negotiable when you find the greatest treasure. Everything becomes sellable. It sounds a lot like Philippians chapter 3, 7, and 8. It's, it's not about us buying the kingdom, right? Because there's no monetary value on saying if you're rich, this is how much money you've got to get to buy the kingdom, right? There's no value that these parables put on it except for this kind of value that we see Paul say in Philippians chapter 3. He says, I count all things as loss. For the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. Everything, everything is loss. What is gain is knowing Christ. He doesn't boast in all that he lost. He boasts in all that he gains in this kingdom. Why? Because the boast that we find, those who found the kingdom boast in its gain. The parable's emphasis is not upon the loss of the merchant or the loss of the stumbler. It's not upon the loss. The the focus of the parable is how they were so far surpassing in gain that they're willing to sell Everything. And I I want you to notice this. When we ask, well, what is the cost of entering into the kingdom? This parable does not give an amount or a total. It says this all, everything. I'll guarantee you this the merchant had more than the stumbler. One was richer than the other. The other one made his livelihood in. In selling, the other one just stumbled upon it. One went away and sold all and it was a little, and the other went away and sold all and it was a lot. It sounds a lot like the parable of the rich young ruler, the story of the rich young ruler, where a young ruler comes before Jesus and says, what do I need to do to enter into the kingdom of heaven? What do I need to do to be saved? And he says, well, follow the laws. And he said, I always are already follow the laws. He says, one thing you lack, go sell everything and give it to the poor. And he couldn't do it. Why? Because he treasured money more than the kingdom. 
Isn't it amazing to us that we're all trying to find what do I need to do to be saved? It's amazing to me when the measure of people's salvation has to do with how long they read their Bible. Hey, uh, do you serve Christ? Yeah, man, I've been, I read my Bible today. How long? 30 minutes, a little daily bread, never hurt anybody. I did 30 minutes today. You think Christ died for 30 minutes of your life? That's literally what you think the whole of the kingdom of God is about, that he's impressed that you gave him 30 minutes of Bible reading. It's all your time. He doesn't want 30 minutes of your time. He wants all your time. And you would joyfully give it all. The barometer of whether or not we're Christians going, man, I'm, I tithe. Most of you don't. Some of you do. I tithe. I give. I tithe. Okay. How much? 10% to the penny. Okay. Christ died for 10% of your money? It's all. Did you, do we get the fact that all of the money is his? Family. You can run everything through that grid. It is all his, and we joyfully lay it all down and let it fall under his kingdom. Why? Why, Why do we do that? Because we're gaining. We're gaining in him. What's the cost? Everything. Now, this becomes a, a little difficult to illustrate um, but, but I think uh, what we can use in this, at least for, for me, and I, I, I have a hard time even giving illustrations like this because I think in our culture, one of our biggest values is, is family and marriage. And I think there's extreme idolatry in that. So much so that we believe that God's highest, highest purpose for our life is marriage. But, but here's what I want us to see. I want us to come down to something that we maybe understand. And let's talk about marriage just for a moment as just an illustration, right? Because the Bible says in Ephesians that marriage is a mystery and it's profound, but it's actually not about you and your wife. It's about Christ and the church. It's supposed to be a picture. It's supposed to be a picture of something greater. Now, let me give you this example. If I was constantly going around and telling my wife how many women I gave up to be with her. Girl, you don't know how lucky you are to be with me. Oh man, there was this girl, she was so fine. And I gave her up for you. First of all, my wife would look at me and go, one, you could never get her, one. <laughs> Two, you're living in a dream world, right? I mean, it would be this, no. What, 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 what would it do? Whether or not that reality was true, whether I could actually get it or not, I'm treasuring something else over her. I'm boasting in my loss, but in boasting in my loss, diminishing my gain. I, 
I don't, I don't have to be a rocket scientist to know, like, what do I have to do, Aaron, to have the marriage that you have? One is this reality of you still think you have to do something to have the marriage. Like, some of you wives and some of you husbands are so stuck on what your spouse is not doing for you that when you really start digging into it, they never come home, they're always out, they're always playing video games, they're always doing this. And, and the, the reality that you don't want to hit is it's not that you don't want them to stop playing video games, it's not that you don't want them to be home, it's not any of those things. What you should really be most hurt about is that they love those things more than you. That should hurt the most. But you don't want to admit that. So what do you do? You fight over behavioral change. You lay down laws. If you would just stop doing this and be at home, but, but is what you want them at home thinking about other things? Is what you want them bringing you flowers? Is that really the fight? Or is the fight that if they loved you, they would? You see, marriage in and of itself has a way of living, but it's not a law. Hear me on this. Laws are a part of covenant, but they don't make covenant. When I stand and I am standing there making my covenantal vows and I'm saying to my wife, I'm saying for death do us part, when I'm saying for richer or for poorer, when I'm saying all of these things, I'm not saying, girl, if you do these things, I'm going to stay with you. And she's not saying, hey, if you do these things, I'm going to say, if you provide for me, if you give me this level of income, if you do this. No, what it is is I love you, I treasure you, and because of that, what happens? Well, you could call it a law, but because I love my wife and I treasure her, I'm not going to go treasure hunting for another girl. I don't need nothing else. Wait, thou shalt not commit adultery is a law. Yeah, but the first command is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I'm not going to covet other things. I'm, I'm going to come home, but why am I going to come home? Not because she's telling me to come home, but because I want to be with her. And am I going to do it right every time? No, absolutely. But here's, here's, here's the thing that you've got to grab a hold of. What we're really fighting for is not more time and more attention in marriage. We're fighting for affection. Why? Because out of affection flows practical ways of living. I, I date my wife. Why? Because I want to. I come home. Why? Because I want to be with her. When we fight and when we mess up and when we're coming after each other, it's not an issue of us going, well, we're fighting. Everything must be falling apart. No, we can have really good fights. Why? Because we're not questioning whether or not we're a high, we, we, we treasure one another. We love one another. We can go through hard times where we don't have much money. Why? Because the core of our relationship is not our prosperity. You see, in the kingdom of God is much to this way. It's this reality of us constantly thinking about all that we've lost rather than focusing on 
boasting in, reveling in the deepest treasure that joyfully caused us to give up all. The big idea is this, my friends. The kingdom of God is so valuable that losing everything on earth but getting the kingdom is a happy trade-off. It's worth every, everything. Everything finds its place in the kingdom. I want to give you these few points here as you close your eyes, and we're going to ed- end in a time focus. There's a few points of just practical. First is this. Treasure the king and his kingdom. Second is this. Value nothing higher than Jesus, the king and his kingdom. Joyfully, joyfully give it all. And boast in the king. Do things that feed and stir your affection for Christ. Why do I come to church? I'm not trying to earn a position. Why do I sit in this gathering with you? I'm not trying to show God how much I love Him. I love Him, and I want that to deepen, and I want to stir that so I gather. Why? Because God says this is what He delights in. When the people of God come together, I want to do what delights the very heart of God. Why do I go into the Word? Not because I'm trying to prove something, but because I want to learn. I want to grow. Why do I pray? Because I want to communicate with the one that I love. And I know that feeds my affections because I'm not talking about some romantic kind of little goosebump feelings. I'm talking about this committed covenantal relationship where I have to constantly remember and remember and remember the value and the treasure. You want to know the, the, the most beautiful thing that my wife can say to me and, and, I, and I mean from the bottom of my heart when I say to her, I don't deserve you. You are far better than I deserve. Right? That's what it feels like to be in the kingdom. When we can look at what Christ has done for us and know there's nothing we could do to earn His grace and favor and that everything else in light of what we get in Jesus and His kingdom fades and finds its value. Isn't it Phenomenal that in the kingdom of God, money has a place. And that's not as king, but it's as steward. We're generous with it. We give it away. Family finds its place. Community finds its place. All of it finds its place in the kingdom of God. Why? Because if we seek Him first in His kingdom, all, all the other things, fall into place. All the other commands and laws are fulfilled if love and treasure and cherishing of Christ is at the center of the kingdom. How do I do this thing? How do I live life as a Christian? The question boils down to this. Do everything to feed and stir and fan a deeper treasuring and affection love for Jesus. That's why we come to this table. That's why we gather together. That's why we read. That's why we study. That's why we tell others. It's out of a deep love and affection for Him. Let's pray. God, I pray that this this parable would dig into our hearts much like 
all of your parables, all of the stories, all the pictures of your kingdom, that rooted in this covenantal relationship with you is what you want is our hearts. What you want is our affection. Yet you have come and purchased our salvation. You've done the work. You've, you've removed us living under the weight of the law to try to earn something from you. And, and you did that by fulfilling the law that that we could not live up to the standards of the law so that you came and you took out your anger and wrath and judgment upon Jesus. You paid our price. You won our affection. You conquered our hearts. You pursued us and loved us and poured out your heart and affection and life. and You cleansed us and washed us. And now, because of the resurrection, we get to live this new life in you. And Lord, I know, I know that everything in this world is fighting for my affection. Everything around us is trying to pull for that first place in our life. But God, I pray and I declare as those who were baptized and, and those who are in this room, God, that as we partake of communion, as we gather together, we're standing in this room saying, God, you are my greatest joy and affection. And let my life resemble that. Everything else, let it find its place. Let it be counted as loss for the joy of knowing you.